Welcome to a special feature presentation of the World War I Centennial News Podcast. This week and next week, we're going to totally break our format as we present a special two-part podcast version of In Sacrifice for Liberty and Peace. This two-part special is an adaptation from a live staged event the Commission produced on the April 6, 2017 centennial of America's entry into The War That Changed the World. Edward Billis as the Artistic Director and Chris Christopher as the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission's Executive Producer pulled together an amazing group of artists, historians, musicians, actors, and others for a live performance staged outdoors at the National World War I Museum and Memorial in Kansas City to an audience of over 3,000 attendees. For this two-part special, we've excerpted key moments from the story that unfolds, the music that was performed, and the readings from a cast of amazing actors, orators, musicians, and other luminaries. Part 1 examines the great debate in America about getting into the war, and Part 2, which will be published next week, is about how events overtook the debate and brought us to war. World War I Centennial News is brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission and the Pritzker Military Museum and Library. I'm Teo Mayer, the Chief Technologist for the Commission and your host. Before we get into the main part of the show, let me try to set this up. We've gone back in time to June 28, 1914. Today, a 19-year-old radicalized teenage Serbian nationalist named Gavrio Princip guns down the Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie on their wedding anniversary, no less. So all of this was kicked off by a kid. After all, what does anybody know about consequences at 19? And gunning down celebrities is generally pretty dumb and definitely misguided. And the Archduke was a celebrity. He was in line for the throne of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Things are already pretty tense in Europe. Austria-Hungary blames the Serbian government for the attack and sees this as a great justification for settling the question of Slavic nationalism once and for all with a little war action. But Russia supports Serbia, so Austria-Hungary asks Germany's Kaiser Wilhelm to back them in the event of a Russian intervention. An intervention that would probably suck in Russia's ally, France, and maybe Britain, too. And just a month later, on July 28, 1914, Austria-Hungary declares war on Serbia, and a big burning match gets tossed on the very dry tinder of European tension. The tenuous peace between Europe's big powers goes up in flames. Within a week... Russia, Belgium, Germany, Great Britain, and Serbia line up against Austria-Hungary and Germany, and World War I begins. But remember, nobody knows at the time that this is a global war. It's just a little imperial action which Germany sees as a wonderful opportunity. Remember, in Germany, the word Kaiser means emperor. So Emperor Wilhelm thinks that this is a good time to expand the German imperial holdings with a little rush to the west across Belgium to deliver a quick and decisive blow to France for an imperially profitable end to a simple messy little conflict. But at the First Battle of the Marne, 
90 miles from Paris, the German plan falls apart and the Germans suffer a defeat at the hands of the Allies. Over a million soldiers face off and fight for six days and sadly, more than 100,000 die. This is where we join up with the live production, beginning with a quote from Barbara Tuckman from her book, The Guns of August. After the Marne, the war grew and spread until it drew in the nations of both hemispheres and entangled them in a world conflict no peace treaty could dissolve. The Battle of Marne was one of the decisive battles not because it determined that Germany would ultimately lose or the Allies ultimately win the war, but because it determined that the war would go on. The nations were caught in a trap from which there was no exit. Even with the United States remaining resolutely neutral, many young Americans needed no persuasion to join the war effort. Mary Gladwin, a nurse from Akron, Ohio, was among the first American Red Cross nurses to go to Europe during the war, serving as the supervisor of nurses at the American Hospital in Belgrade. She wrote, The cannonading lasted all the time. There was no time during 24 hours in the first six months that some of the guns were not fired. My room was a little whitewashed one. Every time one of the big French guns would fire, it would illuminate all the wall, and then I would hear the boom of the guns. That kept up night after night, until the time came that we did not hear them anymore. And Eugene Bullard, the only African-American pilot to fly in World War I, did so not for the United States, but for France. The son of a freed slave, Bullard stowed away to Europe in 1912, determined to escape racism in the U.S. After working as a boxer and vaudeville performer in England, Bullard settled in France. When hostilities broke out, he joined the infantry of the French Foreign Legion, earning the Croix de Guerre for bravery at the Battle of Verdun. After sustaining injuries and declared unfit for infantry service, Bullard earned his wings with the Aeronautique Militaire of France and joined the Lafayette Flying Corps in 1916. His plane was decorated with the slogan, All Blood Runs Red. When the U.S. entered the war, Bullard tried to enlist as a flyer for the Americans. I was more and more puzzled until it suddenly came to me that all my fellow countrymen who transferred were white. Later, I learned that in World War I, Negroes were not accepted as flyers in the United States Army. This hurt me deeply. When hostilities broke out in Europe, thousands of Americans touring the continent descended on London, hoping to find safe passage home, only to find themselves unable to obtain accommodations or tickets for the few ships sailing. A 40-year-old mining engineer and financier from Iowa by the name of Herbert Hoover was living in London in 1914. Hoover organized an American relief committee that provided food, shelter, and financial assistance to over 100,000 Americans. Hoover's leadership earned him the respect of U.S. Ambassador to Great Britain, Walter Hines Page. Ambassador Page tapped Hoover to lead a relief mission to Belgium. After the Battle of the Marne, Belgium faced starvation. Germany had invaded but refused to take responsibility for feeding the populace. On the other side, Britain's naval blockade prevented ships from entering the Belgian ports. So, in October of 1914, 
Herbert Hoover established an organization to procure and deliver food to the starving Belgian population, rescuing a nation from certain ruin. Herbert Hoover wrote, There was no former human experience to turn for guidance. It would require that we find the major food supply for a whole nation, raise the money to pay for it, get it past navies at sea and occupying armies on land, set up an agency for distribution of supplies for everybody justly, and see that the enemy took none of it. It was not relief in any known sense. It was the feeding of a nation. This will later earn Herbert Hoover the job of heading the United States Food Administration. Dateline, May 8, 1915. The headline of the New York Times reads, Lusitania sunk by submarine, probably 1,260 dead, twice torpedoed off Irish coast, sinks in 15 minutes. Froman and Vanderbilt missing. Washington believes that a grave crisis is at hand. The nation is sad as can be. A message came over the sea, came over the sea. A thousand or more who sailed from our shore have gone to eternity. The Statue of Liberty High must now have a tear in her eye. I think it's a shame someone is to blame. But all we can do is just sigh. Some of us lost a true sweetheart. Some of us lost a dear dad. Some lost their mothers, sisters, and brothers. Some lost the best friends they had. It's time they were stopping this warfare. If women and children must drown, if they must drown, many brave hearts went to sleep in the deep. When the Lusitania went down, when it went down. Leading up to the election of 1916, many Americans favored the Allies in the war, yet embraced President Wilson's urging to remain impartial in thought as well as in action. At this time, one-third of U.S. citizens were either born in Europe or were descendants of European immigrants. Sympathy for both countries on both sides of the conflict ran high. The descendants of German immigrants found themselves torn, on the one hand identifying firstly as Americans, yet on the other sympathizing with their relatives abroad. When the U.S. entered the war, German-Americans were labeled alien enemies and faced severe restrictions on their civil liberties. Irish-Americans preferred neutrality as well, as the prospect of the U.S. entering the war on the side of the British was an anathema to Irish nationalist sentiment. The sinking of the Lusitania led many Americans to call for an immediate reprisal against Germany. Wilson proceeded with caution, demanding an apology, compensation for the victims, and assurances that Germany would cease unrestricted submarine warfare. 
in a speech delivered at a citizen naturalization ceremony on May 10, 1915, Wilson affirmed the anti-war U.S. stance. America must have this consciousness that on all sides it touches elbows and touches hearts with all the nations of mankind. The example of America must be the example not merely of peace because it will not fight, but of peace because peace is the healing influence of the world. There is such a thing as a man being too proud to fight. There is such a thing as a nation being so right that it does not need to convince others by force that it is right. Wilson's measured response faced opposition from figures like former President Theodore Roosevelt, who believed Germany's aggression warranted a strong military response. I am pretty well disgusted with our government and the way our people acquiesce in and support it. I suppose, however, in a democracy like ours, the people will always do well or ill in proportion to their leadership. If Lincoln had acted after the firing on Sumter the way Wilson did after the sinking of the Lusitania in one month, the North would have been saying they were so glad he kept them out of war, and that at all hazards, fratricidal war should be averted. Theodore Roosevelt's words were not mere bluster. He would eventually see three of his sons off to war. Only two would return alive. His youngest son, Quentin, died when he was shot down over France in 1918. The conflict about U.S. neutrality didn't just rage in Washington, but was reflected through American society and culture. Here is the great debate playing out as a musical counterpoint in two popular songs of the times, sung from the hearts of two mothers. There's a million mothers knocking at the nation's door. A million mothers, yes, and there'll be millions more. And while within each mother's heart they pray, just hear what one brave mother has to say. America, I Shoot some other mother's darling boy. 
of the political spectrum, the editors of the conservative North American Review argued for U.S. participation. We know now what this war is. It is the last of the great battles for freedom and democracy. America fought the first a century and 40 years ago. France followed through seas of blood and tears. Just lately, the Great Charter has passed from the barons to the people of England. Japan has ceased to be a monarchy except in name. China as a republic defies the power of might. Can anyone doubt that the beginning of the end of absolutism is at hand? Legendary newspaper reporter Walter Lippmann offered his third-way assessment of the role America could play in the war. In May 1916, the president made a speech which will be counted among the decisive utterances of American foreign policy. The speech was an announcement that American isolation was ended and that we were prepared to join a league of peace. It was intended to make clear to the world that if America has to fight, it would fight for peace and the order of the world. It was a great portent in human history, but it was overshadowed at the time by the opening of the presidential campaign. The United States, like Canada and the British Empire, absorbed a massive influx of immigrants from the end of the 19th century through the war. Capitalizing on the idea that immigrants traveled to distant shores seeking freedom from tyranny. In exchange for their freedom and their children's freedom, they were urged to show their patriotism by enlisting to fight. To these broad shores my fathers came From lands beyond the sea They left their home, they left their friends To breathe in air more free To them an alien and it seemed With customs strange and new But my heart knows just one dear flag, the red, the white, the blue, the red, the white, the blue. There is no hyphen in my heart, it can't be cut in two. Oh, flag of bars and silver stars, I've given all to you. 
1916 election hinged on the question of America's neutrality in the war. Wilson, running for a second term, built his candidacy around the idea that America ought to prepare for the possibility of war, yet his campaign slogans, he kept us out of war and America first, persuaded the American public that a vote for the Republican candidate, Charles Evans Hughes, would be a vote for war. While many embrace the slogans, others criticize them. Teddy Roosevelt. President Wilson's ignoble shirking of responsibility has been misclothed in the phrase of a coward. He kept us out of war. In actual reality, war has been creeping nearer and we face it without policy, plan, purpose, or preparation. In September 1916, Wilson accepted the Democratic nomination for president. We have been neutral not only because it was the fixed and traditional policy of the United States to stand aloof from the politics of Europe, but also because it was manifestly our duty to prevent the indefinite extension of the fires of hate and desolation kindled by that terrible conflict, and to seek to serve mankind by reserving our strength and our resources for the difficult days of restoration and healing, when peace will have to build a house Anew. The debate reached every corner of American society. Voices for and against the U.S. joining the war included not only politicians, but men who would likely be called to serve, women, African Americans, and Native Americans fighting for an equal role in American civic life. American Arthur Bullard, who had lived in wartime France and England, wrote in early 1917, Whatever the diplomats may like to call it, this is war, and we do not know how to fight. We have no American general who ever commanded an army corps. Not one of our naval officers ever fought against a dreadnought. None of our artillerymen ever fired a real shot in an enemy aircraft. We must learn. The war is upon us, and we must decide what we are going to do about it. We who love peace ought to keep out of war as long as possible, and when we are forced to go in, go in hard. For women, the prospect of war also provoked debate. Many of the American Red Cross nurses had experienced the tribulations of war firsthand. Jane Delano, founder of the American Red Cross Nursing Service, wrote in the winter of 1915, We have learned that women can be mobilized without confusion, that their chances of illness seem to be no greater than men's, that they face danger with equanimity, out of this experience, we should be able to guarantee a satisfactory nursing personnel, not only for national relief in times of calamity, but for efficient service should our country be confronted with that greatest of all disasters, war. A year later, Bessie R. James of the National League for Women's Service wrote, On November 8, 1916, the foresight of the women is something which cannot but arouse admiration. That anyone should organize to prepare half the populace of the country for war while a president was being put back into office because of a supposed peace policy would seem ridiculous. This, however, was exactly what happened. The first years of the war coincided with the beginning of the Great Migration, a transformative period for African Americans who fled the entrenched racism of the South 
for better wages and living conditions in northern cities like Chicago, Pittsburgh, Detroit, and New York. At the outbreak of war, many African Americans viewed service in the military as an opportunity to show their willingness to serve and improve on their standing as second-class citizens. Others were more skeptical. In a 1917 issue of The Messenger, Chandler Owen and A. Philip Randolph challenged the hypocrisy of American democratic ideals in relation to the African American struggle. Patriotism has no appeal to us. Justice has. Party has no weight with us. Principle has. In his 1914 editorial, World War and the Color Line, W.E.B. Du Bois drew connections between the crisis in Europe and the condition experienced by African Americans at home. Many colored persons may easily make the mistake of supposing that the present war is far removed from the color problem in America. This attitude is a mistake. The present war in Europe is one of the great disasters due to race and color prejudice, and it but foreshadows greater disasters in the future. As the likelihood of war increased in early 1917, Du Bois again unleashed his pen to reflect on the institution of segregated training camps. We must choose, then, between the insult of a separate camp and the irreparable injury of strengthening the present custom of putting no black men in positions of authority. There is only one thing to do now, and that is to organize the colored people for leadership and service if war should come. A thousand commissioned officers of colored blood is something to work for. A diplomat, lawyer, and official of the NAACP, James Weldon Johnson, called for an end to what he termed the excess patriotism which had led the world's nations to war. It is this hot, high-tempered, foolish, bad-mannered patriotism that keeps further away the day for which all lovers of humanity pray. The day when men shall not hate each other because of the boundaries of domain or the differences of race but when universal brotherhood shall be established and a lasting peace shall reign. As they sit in consultation, seeking peace for all the world, I wonder if their thoughts will turn to me. I was at the concentration of the troops to stop the world of the Kaiser in his dash towards the sea. As I sit in meditation, seeking solace from on high, I wonder if they see us standing As they plan the Federation For the races far and high Are they equal in the eyes of the Lord? Are they equal in the eyes of the Lord? The black man faces death and cry, hurrah! 
His soul was pure and bright. He fought a manly fight. No more patriotic son you'll ever saw. Are they equal in the eyes of the law? The black man faced his death in cry same in no man's land tell me now how do they stand are they equal in the eyes of the Lord America's native peoples overwhelmingly supported the United States during the Great War most Indian leaders saw the conflict as an opportunity to gain recognition and to affirm tribal sovereignty, as did the Onondaga and Oneida nations that declared war on Germany. In 1917, Oglala chief Red Fox, a nephew to Crazy Horse, went to Washington and urged Secretary of War Newton D. Baker to offer the services of the Indians in the Great War. From all over the West, we now stand 50,000 Indians between the age of 17 and 55. We beg of you to give us the right to fight. We guarantee you, sir, our hearts could be no better cause than to fight for the land we love and for the freedom we share. Chief Red Fox's sentiments were echoed by the Seneca Arthur Parker, president of the Society of American Indians in 1917, who wrote, the American Indian has common cause with the Allies. The Indian fights because he loves freedom and because humanity needs the defense of the freedom-loving man. The Indian fights because his country, his liberties, his ideals, and his manhood are assailed by the brutal hypocrisy of Prussianism. Challenged, the Indian has shown himself a citizen of the world and an exponent of an ethical civilization wherein human liberty thrives. While debate raged in America, the slaughter continued in Europe. Rapid advances in the technology of weapons of war led to vast devastation. For the first time in history, the battlefield saw the use of tanks, chemical weapons, machine guns, long-range artillery, and aircraft. 65 million men fought in the war from 40 countries. 21 million were wounded. 8 million died, roughly 3,000 every day. Six and a half million civilians were killed, including two million in Russia alone. 110,000 tons of poison gas was used, killing nearly half a million men. In Europe alone, approximately 10 million people were displaced by the war. 1.5 million Belgians were refugees from the Germans. In the Battle of Somme, fought between July and November of 1916, 1 1.2 million men perished for a meager Allied gain of 7.8 miles of territory. During the Battle of the Somme, it is estimated that in the first week of fighting, over one and one-half million artillery shells were fired almost three shells per second for 168 continuous hours. 
Never before had humankind unleashed terror on this scale, and its effects permanently scarred the landscape and the souls of those who were there. And that's the end of part one of In Sacrifice for Liberty and Peace. Join us again next week for part two. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I. Our podcast is a part of that endeavor. We're bringing the lessons of 100 years ago into today's classrooms. We're helping to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across the country. And of course, we're building America's National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. If you like the work that we're doing, please support it with a tax-deductible donation at www.cc.org donate, all lowercase. Or if you're on a smartphone, text the word WW1 to 41444. That's the letters WW and the number 1 texted to 41444. Any amount is appreciated. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, for their support. The podcast can be found on our website at ww1cc.org cn and on iTunes and Google Play at World War I Centennial News. Our Twitter and Instagram handles are both at ww1cc and we're on Facebook at ww1centennial. Thank you for listening to this special presentation of the World War I Centennial News Podcast. A full list of the talented people who contributed to this production is in the podcast notes. And don't forget to share the stories that you're hearing here with someone about the war that changed the world. Wake up, America! If we are called to war, are we prepared to give our lives for our sweethearts and our wives? Are our mothers and our homes we're fighting for? Let us pray, God, for peace, but peace with honor. But let's get ready to answer duty's call. So when all glory stands unfurled, let it mean to all the world. America is ready, that's all. So long.